Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 9th, 2020. This is episode 2744 of the Survival Podcast. Except that that's totally not true. It's not 2744, it's 2749. I don't know where I got that. 2749 of the Survival Podcast. I do know it is Friday, Friday, Friday. Because right now I'm looking out my window at a beautiful grill with wafting smoke coming out of my pellet tube as I'm smoking three full racks of delicious baby back ribs to celebrate the arrival of the weekend. My son, daughter-in-law will be coming over for dinner. The kids will still be here from school and just daily activities, and it'll be fun. We're going to have a fire. I'm looking out, watching my grandson drag a whole bunch of crap, uh, trimmings and bush, bush stuff that's been laying on the ground for a long time and I ain't got to, to the fire pit because he's excited because he gets to have a fire. I get work done and he gets a fire. So I know it's Friday. Got that right. And so Friday is expert counsel Q&A show. Here's what I got for you today. I've got a great quote of the day that was supposed to be on uh, Monday show about fishing. And I didn't do it. So I'm going to do it today. It's a really good poignant quote. I've got three little updates for you uh, about some things going on, how you can help Nicole Sauce, why I'm going to not be saying Library TV very much anymore, but Odyssey, and uh, that branding collaboration thing going on there, and a new video I've got out that you might want to check out. When it comes to our expert counsel today, here's who we got on the deck. We have Paul Wheaton with another update from Wheaton Labs, some real cool stuff going on there. And John Pugliano will talk about whether or not right now is a good buying opportunity for oil stocks, or are you just you know throwing bad money after bad money after good? Now, if you're buying, uh, or good money after bad if you're buying oil stocks, which one is it? Analyzing something called home ignition zones and assessing fire risks, specifically all these wildfires going on with Doc Bones, so that even if you evacuate, maybe you come back and your house is still there. A good thing to know. Dr. Ken Berry talks about keto diets and its impact on liver disease. And then Mike and Sue LaFreeze answer a question of roll your own versus turnkey homeschool curriculum. And I, I seldom disagree with them, but I don't fully agree with the, eh, I don't know how to put it. I think we agree and we disagree at the same time. We'll, we'll, we'll get to it. And then I got a great question on keto dieting for me and Ken Berry, and I think Ken will come at it nutritionally. I'll do it a little bit, but I'm going to come at it today a little bit more from a standpoint of land management. The question is basically, how can we support a keto diet with 70% fat in a sustainable way if we're not going to use plant fats? Because, you know, a, a, a beef produces, you know, about 25% of its weight in fat. Well, there's some math magic that's being left out of that and you know Ken has his opinion about uh, plant fats I have mine they're very similar but eh, we'll get to that when we talk about it anyway let's start out with our quote of the day this is by Doug Larson he said if people concentrated on the reality I'm sorry if people concentrated on the really important things in life there'd be a shortage of fishing poles That's part of why I did the show that I did on Monday about fishing. I, I, and I, I think this is bigger than fishing poles and fishing, but it was obviously a great quote for that day. I selected it. I made great artwork for it and all, and then I, I didn't use it. I didn't bring it up. I skipped over it. Um, I think it's more about what 
really is important generally are not the things that we think of as being important in our world. And yesterday I talked a lot about designing things that you don't want in your life out. I didn't say much about designing things that you do want in. There's a reason. I don't think that you really have to design what you do want in as much as you have to design what you don't want out. We're naturally predisposed to do the things that we love. Generally, what gets in the way of doing the things we love is having to do things we don't love. Well, I also think, though, there is a point to stop and say, well, what do I want more of? And do a little bit, at least, of designing those in. Yesterday, I got done with the show early. I packed up my new Karen cart. Some of you that follow me on social media know what a Karen cart is. Uh, it's basically one of those foldable wagons that you see people with that like soccer games and stuff for kids. I mounted a couple rod holders on one. And I took it to this little park, and I, you know, it's about a quarter mile from where you park to where the creek is. That's not that far to carry fishing stuff, but if you're carrying a five-gallon bucket with four gallons of water in it back because you want to bring fish back to your backyard ponds, that's kind of a ways to go. So I took the carrying cart down by the creek. I brought 28 little different ver ver various uh, sunfish, perch, brim, bluegills, whatever you want to call them home, and uh, I had a really good day. Had a really good day. And I put some steaks on the grill. Cooked for the wife, danced with her on the porch to a song that I'm going to give you today. And if you guys out there will work this song into uh, to something similar, I'll get a lot of thank yous for it. I'll just say that. Before we dig into all, or actually, that's it. We're ready to go and start digging into things. We don't we don't have a sponsor segment today. Uh, here's my three little announcements. Number one, uh, Jeremy Kaufman from Library TV and Odyssey kind of threw a curveball at me with the whole Odyssey thing. So Odyssey is basically the real, you know, honest-to-God competitor with something like YouTube. It is the forward-looking vessel that is being going to be pushed and marketed. Library.tv is the technology and one way of viewing that technology in one format that drives Odyssey. Okay, that's cool if you're, like, you're nerdy and you want to understand the crypto and the blockchain and all that stuff, but when going forward... What most people need to know is Odyssey, O-D-Y-S-E-E dot -E com, is a really cool freaking video site where you can do all kinds of cool shit and see all kinds of cool content. That's what people need to know. That's the branding that needs to go forward. So you're not, I'm not going to have library.tv in my links and my emails. I'm not going to have library.tv uh, featured heavily and prominently in show notes or anything like that. It's going to be Odyssey. And I'm doing that to help them with their push to brand that site. It's the same content, but there's more cool features and things that can be done on the Odyssey side. And again, that's what they're kind of pushing. So when you don't hear me say library anymore, and you hear Odyssey, 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 I haven't switched from one to the other. They're the same thing. Just know that. I just wanted to put that out today. Next up, Nicole, awesome sauce, is in her final push uh, at kickstarthollerrose.com to try to completely revamp everything that started out There's a small Kickstarter, and it just kept growing. And she's putting in a new roasting house and all kinds of stuff and really taking things to the next level. She's got a, a, a portal where you can order coffee from and set up shipments. It's all awesome. It's all awesome as, as it could be. And basically, if you drink coffee, you're just pre-ordering coffee for a lot of it. So if you haven't yet, I mean, Nicole has just been good to this community. She's helped me out with everything I've ever asked her to help me out with. Consider jumping on over to kickstarthollerroast.com, helping to reach those stretch goals, and uh, 
there you go. And then the last is, I have some new videos out today. One's for the item of the day, and we'll get to that when we get to it. But the other one's on barter blankets. And I go through, like, how to run a barter blanket, but more importantly, how to participate in one. Things to do and things not to do. Uh, for best results. I mean, you, it's a free world. You can do whatever you want. But there's some definite things I see people do that are new to barter blankets that are like, that's gonna, that's not going to help your, your cause. That's going to make it hard for you to get anywhere. Right? Um, and there's some mistakes people make with how they present and stuff like that. It's also just a cool thing. I haven't seen anything we do at our workshops other than maybe when we have everybody toward the end stand up and say what they got out of it and share what they're going to do when they go home. I haven't seen anything else create the bonding and the camaraderie that Barter Blanket does when it's done right. And so I have a video out on that. So if you're coming, definitely watch it. If you're coming and you've never done one before, really, 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 really watch it. And if you run events at all, if you do things with like groups of people getting together at all, consider adding this to what you do because it's incredible what it does. Watch the video to learn more about it. And with that, let's... uh. Let's hear from expert council member Paul Wheaton on an update from Wheaton Labs. Hi, Jack. This is Paul Wheaton from Permies.com with another update from Wheaton Labs. Um, we were going to talk about the rocket mass heaters and the teepee, but um, that's that project's still undergoing. And it's like i got a lot to say there. That might be a whole little update in itself. Uh, the greenhouse, uh, the truly passive greenhouse, is well underway. Uh, we're getting into some of the, the uh, final framing of, of it. And, uh, and Josiah, you had something to say about the uh, joinery? Oh, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> these joints that I'm making right now are... Uh, primarily like lap joints that uh, reduce the amount of wood that is removed from the joint so it increases the the strength of the joint um, and I've never seen these joints before so they're they're all new <laughs> cool. so so we may have innovated a new joint I, I don't think we have but we probably but it's possible it could happen yeah just because other stuff is not documented as much as we would like sure yeah but we're definitely doing a lot with roundwood timber framing, which I we don't I don't see very much of that anywhere. Nope. And so, uh, all right. So uh, I think it's cool. I've seen it, and I I think it's strong, and and I like the general design. Uh, next up, we've got a cementless patio, and so uh, we had a really 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 ugly space, and uh, we thought about putting a deck there, and then somebody came up with the idea of like, well. You know, we do have a lot of wood, but wood only lasts like 10 years, maybe 12 years. So, uh, but on the other hand, we also have mountains of rocks. This is the Rocky Mountains. Turns out they're totally made of rock, true to the name. And so we've got tons of rocks. And uh, we also have this place where we've got a lot of sand. And it's kind of like, what if we did our own little kind of dry stack patio of sorts? And so um, that is now complete. Uh, I think it looks way cooler than something made out of cement and way cooler than a standard wood deck. And um, but, but we do have one concern. Uh, Jennifer? 
Uh, the frost heaving concern? That's that's my one concern. <laughs> okay. Like, how's it going to do this winter? <laughs> there are two concerns. One is that the cats will somehow once again <laughs> manage to find the sand bits and make their deposits. But yes, the main concern is how it will hold up over the winter. So we'll let you know next spring. But yeah. it's looking really good. So, and, you know, another another mm. test, you know. So um, uh, we're also going to be putting some, uh, some of our wood ash out there uh, over the winter, not only to give us traction through the winter, uh, but this is a spot where there's no growies anywhere nearby, um, and we're like right on the bedrock. And so, uh, in fact, part of the reason why we did this is there was a giant bit of bedrock that was more like stone. (laughs) Didn't you run the jackhammer to kind of level that out? I did. It was really fun. (laughs) (laughs) So... uh, uh, I, I'm not worried about you know the ash getting into something where we don't want it, but it, but it does seem like if you just take ash and sprinkle it on things, there are reports that it becomes a little bit cement-ish, not totally, but a little bit. And so we're going to do that experiment and see how it goes. Um, next up, our, our sawmill is at uh, full production again. Uh, uh, thanks in big part to Rodney being here, um, and he discovered some magical things. But this is a swing blade style sawmill. And uh, we have 14, it's 14 years old, and it has dozens of mods. And I think that might be worth a whole update in itself, all the different mods that we've done to this sawmill. Um, next up on the list is that uh, we've got our BB20 event coming up in like, I don't know, like a week? We Two can weeks? check the calendar. Yeah, we Something should probably like go that. look. But I know we're tar- starting to talk about what materials do we need to get here and stuff like that. But uh, when we post this kind of event in the past... Uh, and then, by the way, this is a totally free event. No one's getting charged a penny to come out here. Um, the only thing is, is everybody who comes has to have accomplished BB20. So they've accomplished 20 BBs in our system out at permies.com. But it seems like in the past, when we've had events like this, that uh, we end up with a lot of wonderful artifacts, a lot of wood mallets. Have you noticed we have a mountain of wood I mallets? I have noticed that we have a lot of wood mallets. Uh, three log benches. There's probably about a, at least a dozen here, if not more, and we'll probably end up with another six or so. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, garden timber framing. So I'm sure a lot of people, when they think of base camp, they think of the uh, the scaffolding on the Hugo cultures, uh, which I think is pretty cool, but it's a great way for people to learn roundwood timber framing because you can be rough and sloppy, and that's okay. It's very forgiving. So when you do your very first roundwood timber framing, this is an excellent place to get that experience. Uh, Hugel culture. Everybody wants to drive the excavator and build their first Hugel culture. Um, uh, so we get we end up like with I don't know. There's probably six little Hugel culture mounds that were independently built by somebody to get their BB. Uh, a kindling cracker. So this is a steel thing that gets mounted on a stump, and then you put the wood on it, and then you whack it with a mallet. A very safe way of making firewood. Uh, really enjoy this thing. I think it's quick. So much easier than using a maul. Um, and I we're like gonna it a lot too. Yeah. Uh, we're gonna make a bunch uh, on this on this event, um, and so we'll have more of them all over the place. Uh, we're gonna fire up all of our rocket stuff. That should take all week. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to um, drop a bunch of trees. It seems like after every event like this that we have, there's a bunch of trees that are downed and peeled and and up on blocks or something to keep them dry. That'll be exciting. And then we use them later for other projects. Um, and, of course, the great thing about hosting one of these events is that uh, other people put up all our firewood. Oh, yes. Please come to the BB20 event. <laughs> yeah. 
So uh, at this time, we have tickets for the uh, permaculture design course, the permaculture technology jamboree, and the skip event. Those three are all in a row. So some people buy tickets for all three, some for just two. Um, and I'm going to provide everybody listening to this with a link for free rocket mass heater plans. Uh, hopefully, uh, Jack will provide that link to everybody. And um, uh, you'll be able to get those are Ernie and Erica's plans, the very popular annex plans, full full rocket mass heater plans. I think they normally sell them for twenty bucks. Cool. And so we have permission to to give those away. Um, that's all I got. You guys got anything else? No? I think that wraps it up. Okay. Uh, thanks, Jack. Well, if you if you didn't get the little sound bite there, that's from a TV show called Big Bang Theory, and the Wheaton referred to there is uh, Will Wheaton uh, of Wesley Crusher fame from uh, from Star Trek: The Next Generation. Little nerd humor thrown in. Wheaton, Wheaton, Wheaton. Uh, actually, Paul is a distant relative to Will Wheaton, from what he tells me. Not sure if that's true or not, but he says so. Next up, uh, John Pugliano has the uh, skinny for you on is there now a buying opportunity with oil stocks? Hey, TSP, we have a timely financial question from Darren in Missouri. He's asking about oil company stocks, and he frames his question really well, so let me read the whole thing. I've noticed the price of oil in some individual oil stocks, such as VLO and MRO, are slipping again. The airlines have announced about 50,000 more employees will be let go. I wonder if oil demand will fall even more. If so, would you recommend energy ETFs, oil ETFs, or individual stocks? Knowing you don't have a crystal ball, would you recommend waiting or is now a good time? Do you see this as another buying opportunity for long-term hold? Or are these very low prices the new norm? Okay, Darren, great questions. First off, I do have to acknowledge something here. You mentioned that I don't have a crystal ball. Well, I used to say that. That's not true anymore. The Tactical Redneck purchased a crystal ball for me. So I'm still trying to get it to work. I can't predict the future yet, but I can't say that I don't have a crystal ball anymore. Okay, now as far as the energy sector, I remain bullish on it. And full disclosure, I liked oil stocks before the oil collapse that we've seen because of COVID. So I've held oil stocks and oil ETFs in my portfolio for a while now. I like them before. I like them even better at these lower prices. And I do plan to add additional holdings in the coming weeks. Because to answer one of your questions here, no, I don't think that this is a long-term trend of new normal low energy prices. Certainly not at below $40 a barrel. There is definitely a long-term trend of a reduction in energy prices. Oil peaked back in 2008, so we're more than a dozen years into a long-term impact of oil prices coming down, but that doesn't mean they're going to go to zero. Remember, you know, six months ago during the big COVID panic when future contracts on oil went to zero, but you weren't going to the gas station putting unleaded gasoline or diesel fuel in your tank for zero, right? You were still paying two or three dollars a gallon. So while it is true that we're in a long-term trend of a slowdown in the growth in the oil sector, a slowdown in growth does not mean no growth. So right now, I think that oil at and below $40 a barrel is an attractive entry point. And I say that because over the near and midterm, remember, I have no idea what's going to happen next week, but over, let's say, six months to two years, from a probability standpoint and a demand cycle usage, 
I think it's far more likely that oil is to be priced at, say, $50 a barrel than it is at $30 a barrel. And in fact, if we get enough of that momentum and regression to the mean and the COVID hysteria starts to dissipate and we see a resumption in not only global growth, but specifically more growth in the industrial sectors, then oil above $50 a barrel and probably in that $50 to $65 range, I think is highly probable. And if you look at where that is in today's prices, you know, you're talking about somewhere around a 50% increase in the price of oil. So if you're willing to wait, say, six to 24 months, then yes, I think now is as good a time as any to, to buy into this sector. As far as my personal holdings, you mentioned VLO. That's not really a pure oil company because it's really more of a gasoline and petroleum refining company. But I do own VLO. I like that company. That's Valero Oil. Uh, the other one you mentioned is MRO Marathon. I don't own Marathon, but I, I think certainly they are one of the mid-level players that's likely to survive. They've, they've recently reinstituted their dividend. I prefer to own the real big players in this industry, companies like ExxonMobil and Chevron, because I think over the years, even as we do move away from oil as a primary energy product, companies like Chevron and Exxon, who right now have a large moat around their business, where they're able to dominate and make profits within the oil sector, they will continue to evolve and integrate their businesses away from oil and more into the energy delivery sector. So, you know, right now they primarily deliver oil and petrochemicals. Well, that doesn't mean that in the future they won't be dominating and owning electric recharging stations or liquid natural gas or, you know, hydrogen cells. These companies are big, huge, multinational oligarchs, and they're just not going away overnight. I also like some of the pipeline and uh, infrastructure companies. I currently don't own it, but Kinder Morgan is on my watch list. That's a stock that has really been performing poorly lately, but it is starting to come off a bottom. It looks like it's recovering. It's about to approach its 50-day moving average, and I think it has a place in my portfolio. As far as exchange-traded funds, I own XLE. That's a highly traded and a highly regarded energy sector ETF. It, too, looks like it has maybe put in a double bottom. It's still uh, a little bit of a ways off of its 50-day moving average. But as I say, I do own that, and I wouldn't have any hesitation about buying more shares in that right now. If you want to get a little bit more of a perspective on what I think about the oil industry, you can check out my YouTube channel. About a month ago, I put up a video there entitled, Will Oil Stocks Recover? It's about a two-minute video, and I take you through some recent oil crashes going back to the Great Recession and showing you charts of how once oil bottoms out, generally within... 12 months or so after that bottoming, the price of oil goes on to recover and goes up at least 50%. So check that video out. And in fact, you can check out all my work either at investablewealth.com or the Wealthsteading Podcast. Well, hey, Darren, again, thanks for the great question. Next time I'll be back and we'll field a bunch of ham radio questions. Next up, let's hear from Dr. Bones on preventing your house from being incinerated in fire season. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, an author of books like The Survival Medicine Handbook, Alton's Antibiotics and Infectious Disease, and Alton's Pandemic Preparedness Guide, plus designer of an entire line of medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Recently, we published an article relating to the wildfires that are turning the American West into a burn zone every year. This year, the fire season has been especially long and severe, 
Matter of fact, it's been the worst in 18 years, with thick smoke affecting large areas of the North American landscape and even reaching Northern Europe, if you can believe that. Heck, you can see it from space. Although evacuating a wildfire area is the wisest choice from a safety and medical standpoint, there are principles of property defense that may give you the best chance of returning to an intact home. The majority of buildings lost to wildfires are started by minor burns. If you can improve the resistance to ignition of the area around the home, your residents will be less likely to be susceptible to spot fires and ember storms. You can best create a defensible space by managing vegetation and other flammables in what we call the Home Ignition Zone, or HIZ. The HIZ concept was developed by the Forest Service way back in the 1990s, and it's an area up to 200 feet from the foundation, including the vegetation, the home itself, and other structures, items, or attachments, things like decks, sheds, outdoor furniture, and fencing. Measures to improve fire resistance may sometimes be difficult to accomplish, but they will decrease the risk of fire damage. Generally, home ignition zones are divided into three parts. The immediate subzone, this is the area that's including the home itself and up to five feet around it. Non-flammable surfaces here are protective and in consideration should be given during the construction of the home itself. You can harden your home against wildfires with the following measures. This is for the immediate zone. Screening areas under patios and decks with wire mesh. That will help prevent burning debris from entering under the home as well as avoiding the storage of combustible materials under patios and decks. Some people use it as storage, but if that's flammable, that's not a good thing. Cleaning dead leaves and other debris from rooftops and gutters. Good idea. Common chore. You should do it. Replacing and repairing any broken, loose, or missing shingles and roof tiles. That makes sense. Preventing embers from passing through e-vents by insulating with 1 8 inch metal mesh screening. Cleaning debris from exterior attic vents and also adding the 1 8 inch metal mesh there as a barrier as well. Replacing damaged or loose window screens. And of course, removing mulch, wood piles, and other flammables that are against the exterior walls of your home. That includes, by the way, those thorny bushes that you have under each window. You have to decide whether you want fire protection or home invasion protection. Now that's the immediate subzone. Then there's an intermediate subzone. This is the area that's from 5 to 30 feet away from your home. Here, careful use of landscaping can slow the spread of fire by reducing both fuel loads and continuity. You should have driveways, paths, decks, and patios made of non-flammables that can serve as fire breaks. Keep lawns and ground cover to a height of no more than 4 inches. Remove ladder fuels. Ladder fuels include vegetation that are under trees, maybe a shrub or a bush under a tree, that allow a ground fire to reach the canopies. Low branches on large trees can also act as ladder fuels. So you want to prune mature tree branches 10 feet from the ground, or if it's a small tree, up to about a third of the total height of the tree. Be sure to have at least 18 feet between tree canopies. More if you're uphill from the potential fire. Fire, hot air goes uphill and so does fire. Limit trees and shrubs to single plants or small groups of a few each to break up fuel continuity. You don't want flammable wood touching flammable wood on a different tree. Beware of vegetation near large propane tanks. That is something that I sometimes have problems clearing out since we have a large propane tank and things just want to grow around it. I have trouble just keeping that area clear. Lastly, 
there's the extended subzone. This is the extended area 30 to 100 feet or more from the home. Strategy here involves spacing and pruning shrubs and trees in an effort to keep the fire low to the ground. That's what you want. You want the fire low to the ground and not getting in the trees. And that will help interrupt its path. The wise property owner would remove accumulations of dead plant and tree material in this space, remove saplings that are growing between mature trees, remove vegetation that's adjacent to storage sheds or other outbuildings, and assure all trees 30 to 60 feet from the residence have at least 12 feet, not 18 necessarily, but 12 feet between canopies. More if they're downhill. If areas 60 to 100 feet or 200 feet if it's downhill from the home, they should have at least six feet between canopies. There are variations of these strategies, but they're all based on location, the types of plant life in the area, and other factors. So you've got to discuss your specific situation with your local U.S. Forest Service official. They know the area, and they know basically what the safest thing to do is. Bottom line, work hard to harden your homes against wildfires, but don't be a hero. Hit the road if you're in the path of the blaze. This is Joe Alden, MD, that old Dr. Bones, Wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, do you support our mission of putting a medically prepared person in every family? If you do, please consider getting some of the quality medical kits, individual supplies, and personal protection gear available at Nurse Amy's store at store.doomandbloom.net. That's store.doomandbloom.net. You'll be glad you did. Next up, Dr. Ken Berry with some thoughts on how a keto diet would impact somebody with uh, various different types of liver disease. Hey, Jack and the TSP crew. This is Dr. Ken Berry, family physician, answering a question from a listener today. This question comes from Ben, but it is applicable to any of you guys who have any degree of liver failure, fatty liver, cirrhosis, uh, NASH, N-A-F-L-D, any of, any liver issue, you need to pay particular attention to this answer. So Ben has a friend who, ha- who has, basically has end-stage liver disease and a 50-50 chance of making it 90 days. And people don't think about their liver, but it, when your liver is shot, you're done. If you can't get a transplant, you will die and it will not be a pleasant, peaceful death. It it would be a miserable death for both you and your family. So everyone needs to honor their liver. Uh, Ben's friend is 38 years old, a male, uh, made lots of bad lifetime decisions, lots of booze, heavy sugar and carbs, and a smoker. And all of those things led directly to his liver damage. No question about that. He got sick four months ago and just went downhill. And now he's he's in a pickle uh, with a meld score of 30, which is very advanced end-stage liver disease. And Ben wants to know, is the proper human diet for him? Is the keto, what supplements, what herbs, vegetables? I'm basically, what the hell can, can I do to help prolong my friend's life and, and help him have a better life? Uh, applaud your, your fraternal love here, Ben. You need to tell your friend that he needs to do the following things. He needs to eat an absolutely proper human diet that consists of meats and vegetables and water and maybe some unsweetened tea and some black coffee, and that's it. Plenty of salt. Salt's not bad for the liver. The fat, the protein in the proper human diet are not bad for his liver at all. What has destroyed his liver is the booze, no doubt, the high-carb diet, and for many people, just swigging down soft drinks, 
that are sweetened with either sucrose or high fructose corn syrup, that contains way too much fructose and your liver has to store that as fat. And very often it'll store that as fat in the liver. And so fat storage in the liver, which we call fatty liver disease or NAFLD, very, very inflammatory and unhealthy for your liver. He probably took a lot of anti-inflammatories and, and Tylenol or acetaminophen, and he was also a smoker. So if any of you guys are drinking lots of booze, stop that. It's bad for your liver. If you're smoking, stop that. It's bad for your liver. If you're drinking lots of Cokes or fruit juices, many fruit juices have more sugar and more fructose than a Coca-Cola or a Pepsi. There is no nutrition in fruit juice that that uh, justifies the amount of sugar and, and and fructose you get in fruit juices. Fruit juices are not healthy for human beings to drink. Uh, he's probably your friend Ben's probably combating nausea, fatigue. Probably looks terrible, feels terrible. He may not have much of an appetite at all. There is a product I would recommend if he's just not able to eat solid foods called Keto Chow, C-H-O-W, and they have a website, and it's it's basically, they have soups and they have shakes. Now, for normal people, I don't recommend that, but for somebody like your friend, Ben, he may not be able to take solid food, but he could drink Keto Chow soups and shakes, and that's going to give him the protein, the fat that all of his body needs, including his liver, and also vitamins and minerals that he needs. Now, he... I mean, he's in a, he, it's almost too late to ask the question, but I know you're just trying to do the right thing here. But that's gonna, that diet, the proper human diet is gonna help him live as long as he possibly can and hopefully make it to a liver transplant. Uh, I hope that his financial and spiritual house is in order because he's really in a bad spot here, but hopefully we can keep him hanging on till he can get a, a transplant. But uh, for all the other listeners, I want you to understand Fatty liver leads to exactly where Ben's friend is at right now. So if you've been diagnosed with fatty liver, that is a lethal diagnosis. That's not a joke. It's not something you can just live with and ignore. You've got to cut the carbs immediately and get rid of the fatty liver, or you will wind up in Ben's friend's shoes. Hope this answer helped. I'll talk to you guys next time. All right, I I agree with everything Ken said there. I do want to reinforce the fruit juice thing and fructose as a whole. I know some of y'all are going to think this is excessive, but it's the truth. Fructose, fruit sugar, is as bad for your liver as alcohol is. I wouldn't say ounce for ounce, but the overriding damage to the liver is huge. And, and so many parents have been conditioned to give their children fruit juice. And it is such a bad, bad idea. With one tiny, itty-bitty difference, and it, it doesn't make a, a, a bit of difference in, in, the, in the grand scheme of biochemistry of the body, your liver processes fructose exactly the same way that it processes ethyl alcohol. Look it up, do some research, and you'll see that I'm right. And what that means is you're putting the same burden on your liver when you consume a lot of fruit juice as you do when you consume too much alcohol. And we all know that alcohol is bad. No one no one questions that. Your, your liver isn't damaged by your drinking of alcohol because you got intoxicated in your brain. It's damaged because the liver is forced to process the volume of alcohol. 
While I think that it's probably a case that more people destroy their liver with, with alcohol than fruit juice, I think I think it actually can be the other way around in some instances because no one thinks, oh, gee, I shouldn't drink too much apple juice or orange juice or pineapple juice today. Do you see what I mean? And you know, generally people don't start consuming alcohol when they're four, but they sure start consuming fruit juice when they're four. And parents have been advised, and I believe this is a sin, of modern medicine to give their children this shit. And it is a terrible, terrible, terrible idea. And if you just want to take things into overdrive and destroy your body as quickly as possible, drink things like screwdrivers. Drink lots of fruit and alcohol together. That is probably the worst thing. Because then your body has to set up and, and get things get in line. First, it must process all the alcohol because it's a toxin. Then it must process all the fructose. And then it can pr pr process all the other sugars, which are all now backed up, jacking up your blood sugar level. This is a serious thing, and I, I feel terrible for this man's friend. I really do. And I wish there was more that could be done now, and they're, they're, they're probably it. And this guy needs a liver transplant. That, that, and I don't know that under the circumstances he'll get one. I think it's highly unlikely. The time to address this is now. It was yesterday, but if you're not addressing it yesterday, address it today. Uh, next up, I've got one for my consular prees on homeschooling. Um, somebody specifically look, looking for kind of an off-the-shelf, you know, comprehensive program instead of having to do everything themselves. This is Michael and Sue with HaloBysue.com, designing the life you love to live. For the expert counsel, hey Jack, hey TSB community, today's question comes from Noah. Do you have general thoughts and specific recommendations regarding turnkey, self-contained, homeschool curriculum options, online, software, or textbooks that don't require hours of preparation and hand-holding every day for each child? I have five kids of widely varying ages. We've tried lots of well-regarded subject-specific curriculum that presuppose that at least one parent is a full-time academic teacher with no other demands on their time. Multiply that by N subjects and five children. There is no way to integrate this into our busy homestead-based lifestyle. Thank you, Noah. So the answer is yes. There are tons of integrated curriculums that require almost zero work by a parent, and um, Acellus is one of those that Jack is using. But before... You think about that turnkey curriculum, I'd like you to think about the medical experts and the educational experts that we have today, where there's one day it's heads, the next day it's tails, then we end up with common core. So just kind of wrap your head around, do I want my kids to learn subjects or how to learn? And that's really important. So believing that school is a nine-month process, and then you have other times off, versus learning is a lifetime commitment to the day is a super important transition for us to make in our heads to wrap it around. Let's enjoy learning and stop worrying about subjects. So with the cell is it's totally online. You can use it at home. Your kid has a dashboard where you can go check in how much math did they do? All those kinds of things. We would recommend that you use an online platform for math and language arts like grammar And then the rest of it is something you can incorporate in your homestead or you can group subjects. For example, we do history all together. We have a four-year-old and a 14-year-old and five kids right now out of 10 who are still at home. And so 
we focus on doing things together. So when we watch a video together or we're out at the zoo together, that some of those concepts for physical science for the older kids and physical science for little kids go together. And so we can have the same conversation. It takes a lot less work for the teacher. And for us, we do like no formal studies in March and September. So our calendar is planned in advance, uh, but we don't do school 8.30 to 3.30. Um, so like in March, if we're working, we work in the yard probably starting in the afternoon around 2 o'clock because it's cooler in the morning or colder in the morning and it warms up. And in September, it's just the opposite. We get up and we're out in the yard at 6 in the morning because we get out before it gets hot to do our work in the yard. So for me, the homestead is the lesson. And growing up, we lived in southern Oregon and had an organic farm. There were five kids in our home, and we all went to school, and both of my parents worked full-time outside the home. And we got up in the morning at 5, and we took care of the animals. We came home from school and took care of the animals. And then we had a great garden, but I would say 50 to 75% of our food was grown on our two acres or traded with neighbors. Because we'd had a cow earlier on, and my mom didn't want to do that much work again. So it was just like we had chickens and ducks and horses and stuff like that. So the homestead is the lesson. And my parents would come home from work. My dad would change up, and he would be out in the garden, and so would we. Or we'd be in the kitchen with my mom, and she canned and did all kinds of stuff to preserve food all year long, even when she was working full time. So to me, it's doable. Yes, and it's important to remember that you wanted to teach your kids how to learn and not necessarily teaching them certain subjects because eventually they're going to pick the subjects that they're interested in that they want to really study. Right, and so my mom has, out of her seven kids, three of us love to garden. And, well, one my one brother likes growing flowers, so I guess that counts too as gardening. But it's that it's that process of learning. And if you think I'm going to take Bill Mollison's introduction to permaculture and my kids are going to learn that. I did that one year about seven years ago because my son took a course in college using that book. And I thought that's great. I could not understand that. I had to go to Matt Powers junior high book on permaculture to start building my base of permaculture information. And I realized doing that, there's astronomy, chemistry, biology. I mean, it's a deep dive. Plus, it links you to ideas and thousands of videos on professionals who are doing Bill Mollison's work, but better because we've learned since then. And that's the thing about lifelong learning. Yes. And so we develop patterns to our day and to our year. So it's not a, a based around time. It's based around the work that needs to be done. And, and, and ours is the work that needs to be done in the yard, right? That's, that's critical for us. So as we've said before, the bell doesn't ring. So at certain times of the year, uh, the garden certainly takes precedent. And so we actually school year-round. We don't do a nine-month program where we're in school from 8.30 to 3.30. No, we school year-round. There are times when we're doing one subject, the kids may be doing math, It'll lighten up. The other times of the year, it gets more intense uh, as we have less work to do out in the yard. Or when it's really hot. We can get in a lot more educational stuff inside. Okay, so also in this question, there was this hand-holding of the five kids. 
So that's either a systems problem at your home or a boundaries issue. So a systems problem is something like you want your kid to be an independent learner, but you've given them something that's too hard for them. And that goes back to the educational experts. If your kid is 10, they should be in the fifth grade book. But that's not necessarily so, especially if you're training independent learners. You need to have them in at a subject where they understand it and picking your online curriculum where you can be wherever you need to be and you progress through that subject at your own pace. And for us, one of the things we do is we have a checklist for our older kids that they've got to go through each day. Um, and uh, the heaviest lifting for us, I'd say, would probably be the day before co-op as our kids are trying to get ready for co-op. Yeah, we're checking their work. Did you get ready for co-op? Yeah. And then the day after co-op, I go over their stuff and say, do you know what you're doing for co-op? So The other part you said was the system. The other thing is also is boundaries. So the boundaries issue is, as a parent, you are not telling them what to do and leave you alone. And it probably sounds mean to some people, but we have a very big chatterer in our house, and she's great at distraction. So in the morning, you have to get up. You can say, good morning, I love you, and then you can't talk to me until your chores are done, your bed is made. There's some things they have to do in the morning before they can start sidetracking the day because <laughs> kids are great at that. So you just say, no, you do this. I'll talk to you as soon as this work is done. It's really important to give your kids boundaries. Yeah, so this has been Michael and Sue Laprise with HaloBySue.com reminding you to teach your kids how to learn so they can design the life they love to live. Back to you, Jack. So I'm not sure that, I, that disagree is what I said in the intro about this, but maybe a different perspective. Some of their cautionary tone toward using kind of a, a comprehensive, holistic, you know, um, or a turnkey, I guess is the word used there, curriculum, uh, because, well, you know, there was this, and then there was Common Core, and then there's that. None of that matters to me. What matters to me is what is the curriculum that my grandson, for instance, is using from Excellus. And since I'm happy with that curriculum, I don't care how many times, how many other places changed what they did and when they were right and when they were wrong. It doesn't matter to me. And I have to tell you, you know, even with my wife having the time to spend with the kids, having a toddler, a four-year-old, and having, you know, a nine-year-old, and that variance, and then trying to do things in her life that she wants to get done as well, and being at our stage in life with age, having a curriculum that that boy can do your work, sit down and do it, and he does it, and then he brings the parts he needs help with to her, and she helps him with that, and he goes back and gets it done. And watching the kid bounce through my house this morning at 9.30 in the morning and say, I'm done for the week, yeah, dig that. That's why he's outside working on, the, working on you know, picking up sticks and stuff for me for a fire tonight. And all the other stuff she talked about, great. And I don't think that one gets in the way or impedes the other. I think one actually can empower the other. You know, he's been going to archery classes, and we consider that part of his homeschool. He's not getting a grade for it, but he's developing that skill set and getting all the learning that comes with it. They've been going on nature walks at the nature center down the road with, you know, a docent taking them on and explaining the ecosystems and stuff like that. Like, there's, like, all of that other stuff can still be done. And, I will say this. I see tremendous disruption and pushback 
from the onslaught avalanche of homeschooling that has already come and is going to continue unabated, the giant hole sucking out of the public school system. And while I think the kind of stigma of homeschool or whatever has been overrated, it may not be in the future. And my grandson is not homeschooling in the traditional sense. He's attending a private school from home. And that has trade-offs. It does mean there's a set curriculum. It does mean he has to get through it. It does mean that... But we still have full control over things like, you know what, if he's struggling in a subject and he takes twice as long to do that subject as his other subjects, so what? If he ends up at a point where he's moved on a grade in all subjects but one and he's still catching up in that one, so what? Nothing bad happens. In the end, all you have is a final grade and a final average. And the beauty of something like Excellus is in the end you have a transcript. You have a school transcript. Someone looking at that transcript, be they someone admitting you to a university, uh, considering you for a job or a trade school or military service or anything like that, would not be able to tell the difference between that transcript and any other transcript from any other high school anywhere in the country. It would be no different than if there was a private uh, let's say that let's say the the Catholic Church down the road. Like I went to Catholic school until I figured out how to get kicked out because I didn't want to be there. But let's say we had one down the road here, and I paid to send him to, to Catholic school every day, and he went to school there. And it's a private school. It's usually thought upon very highly, by the way, private schools. And then he came out of that and graduated high school there. You know, at St. Mary's or something like that. There is no difference. There is no difference except that we maintain total control over the process, the how, the when, the what, and he is thriving. And that, that above all is the most important thing to me. You can do this however you want to, but if you can find something that works for you and works for your kid, I don't think it matters exactly what. But again, I cannot recommend Excellus highly enough. Now, there is a way to do Excellus for free. I don't know exactly how to do it, but you can research it. But you don't get the transcript. You don't get the support. You don't get the teachers. Basically, you get access to all the curriculum for free. Uh, but if you want the organization, the support, the structure, etc., then you have to pay. Um, it, it's 250 bucks a month, and that can seem very expensive. But if you do the Roger Billing Scholarship Program, which is basically you make your kid watch a really cool one-hour video once a week and make a comment after the video to show he was there, you get it for 80 bucks, 79.99 a month, and it's less if you pay for the full year. So I, 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 again, I am a fan. I am watching this boy thrive. I'm watching him learn, and I'm watching him challenge himself. I'm watching him get like a B plus on a single assignment and be unhappy with it and redo it on his own. If it works for them and it works for you, it's good. That's, that's the way I see it. In the end, we learn what we learn when we need to learn it. Speaking of learning what we learn when we need to learn it, I got a really interesting email today. And uh, I did send it off to Ken Berry. Um, but I'm also going to go ahead and answer it myself today. And I'll send Ken uh, a link to this episode in the timestamp where he can hear this answer. So maybe it will influence his answer on some level. But he says to Ken Berry and uh, Jack, if 70% of our diet uh, should be from fat, how do we do that sustainably on a large-scale human population point of view? 
if we should not consume plant fats. Details, regardless of whether or not you count calories, 70% fat diet is a lot of fat. The average beef produces less than 25% of its weight in fat. If you wanted to consume the entire animal with as little waste as possible, and I do, where do I acquire enough fat? Do I have to add bacon to any of my meals? Actually, that doesn't sound half bad. Well, you're on the right path there with bacon. Um, pork is a far more fat-producing animal than a beef is, especially certain breeds of pork. So adding things like bacon or just cooking with things like organic lard, it'd be a great way to go. If you are raising your own pigs, a lot of people raising their own pigs and aren't doing it for profit, uh, one of the more popular pigs to raise is guinea hogs, American guinea hogs. And those things are just covered in fat. And a lot of that fat doesn't get through the butchering process. It gets rendered as lard. So if you're doing that, like you combine that. The fat doesn't all have to come from the same animal. But let's start off with something that I think many people struggle with when they're told to eat 75% of their calories from fat. I didn't say to eat 75% of your volume in fat. So if we have a beef and it's a, a good you know, fat-producing beef and it's got 25% of its weight in fat, Okay, well, what what percentage of the remaining weight is bone? I would have to believe that it's significant. Oh, gee, by the way, you know a great, delicious source of fat is that marrow in those bones that we throw away now? So since we want to use it all, let's make sure we are doing things with those bones to extract and use that marrow. Like Oso Busco, one of the most delicious things ever invented. You can look that up if you don't know what it is. Uh, roasted bone marrow has become something that chefs are preparing on. So there's another source of fat. Additionally, let's make sure we're not throwing away, especially when we're raising our own beef, which I think this guy is based on his signature, our organ meats. They're incredibly high in fat. Now, I am not the kind of guy that wants to sit down and eat a plate of liver. But what I will do is cut in about 10% liver into ground beef, and you'll never taste it. In fact, I think it actually makes it taste better. So that's another way to increase fat. But I just want to start out with something that's really important for people to understand. The most sustainable, and I would say even regenerative systems to produce calories per acre are grazing systems. Grazing systems that use savanna mimic systems in them, in the civo pasture. So that we're growing trees that have mass crops and fruit crops that the animals eat that help fatten them. And there is, there is no way that a cornfield can, can produce the calories per acre that a system like that is capable of producing, especially when we start doing leader-follower systems. So that we're not just grazing cattle and we're not just grazing pork, but maybe we're also doing pastured poultry. And if we take that approach with leader-follower systems, the land gets healthier and healthier every year. It produces more and more food for the animals, and then we eat the animals. right? So we can, we can grow enough animals to feed everybody, and we don't need any CAFOs or feedlots. And we don't need to grow one ounce of corn to feed a cow ever. Ever. We do need... To do this right in a lot of climates, some grain production to produce pork and poultry, and more poultry than pork. 
if we we don't have the systems to support this yet, but with systems that, that rely on the production of things like acorns and chestnut and hazel, we can produce pork without any grain either. Pork uh, pigs are actually great grazers, and they would prefer to live on the diet of grazing and and nuts than eat grain. They really would. Poultry, we do need to feed some grain. Even Joel Salatin does that. He does it with pork as well. Again, we haven't built these systems, but we can. Just understand, we can do that. We can feed people mostly with a meat-based diet, and we can do it more sustainably than field-based agriculture ever can, infinity, period. There is no scientific argument against it. There is only you know, the settled science argument. As soon as somebody uses settled science with me, I am done with them. If it's settled, it's not science. There is no such thing as settled science. Because I'm not going to say there will never be a way to do this the other way. There will never be a way to outproduce calories with vegetables. I'm saying there isn't right now. Okay, so just we can feed people with meat. That is not a thing. And I don't think this guy's asking that. Next up, when Ken says no vegetable fats, I think, I'm not 100% sure, but based on a lot of his videos and stuff I've watched over the years, what he's talking about is soybean oil, corn oil, all the stuff, all the glug, glug, glug that comes in a jug that people use in their cooking. So you're talking about oils from, from, from grains mostly. Or from seeds that are not really human food, like canola, rapeseed oil, is cottonseed oil, like the fact that humans even consume this is, is, is mind-boggling to me. I don't know how he feels about coconut oil. I have no problem with it, though I don't think it's something we should use completely all the time. I think it's a good vegetative source of fat. And I'm going to give you kind of all my fats that I think are just fats that you can eat, and I'll tell you the ones I think you should put some moderation on. Number one, all animal fats. If it's fat and it comes from animals, there's going to be some redundancy in this because I think people forget what that means. But if it comes from a, a something with a face, and that includes fish, then it's a good fat. So that opens up fish oils, it opens up fatty fish, etc. Next up, again, coconut oil and cocoa nibs. The stuff they make chocolate out of, when it's not mixed with sugar and, it, and just a straight cocoa nib or pure cocoa, is actually very high in fat, very high in fiber, and to me, it is a proper human food. It's not something we should be stuffing a hundred pounds of it into ourselves, though you wouldn't do it anyway. It is fairly self-limiting. Next, olive oil. I've never heard Ken Berry say a negative word about olive oil. Now, you would think no plant oils, that that would be negative. But I've brought up olive oil with him many times. He has never objected to it. I am going to tell you, I am pro-olive oil. My, my, my caution with olive oil, and this is as much making it not nutritious as making it not appealing. Do not saute at high temperatures with olive oil. Olive oil, when we go too high, it has a low smoke point. It becomes acrid, it becomes bitter, and it becomes nutritionally not good for you. So low temperature sautés with olive oil, etc. In fact, a lot of times what I'll do to boost fat in a sauté, I'll sauté in like butter or ghee or lard, and then once you kill the heat, I'll, I'll drop a tablespoon of, of really great tasting olive oil in at the end and kind of stir it through, and that way you don't cook any of the flavor out. You get that great fat, and it's pretty much uncooked at that point. 
So we're letting the temperature come down before we do that. So we've killed the heat. We've set the side off to the side. We're getting our plates ready, and then we hit it with that, give it a good toss, and then serve it. Just a fantastic way. Or adding it to salads. Uh, most nuts, I think, are fine. That doesn't mean it's a great idea to be using a lot of nut oils. So if we're consuming nuts, we get a good fat from that, and we just have to watch the macros and we're not eating too many carbohydrates because there usually is some, some carbohydrate in nuts. Um, avocado. Avocado, I think, is the perfect fat that doesn't come from something with a face. If, if there, 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 I don't believe there is a better source of fat that grows from something in the ground on the planet. And I use avocados all the time. Here's a little hack for avocado. Freezing an avocado does not do anything to degrade its flavor, taste, and texture. They're already kind of mushy as it is. Um, Costco sells organic, diced up avocado, great big giant bag, and then there's little bags inside it. It is a fantastic way to do avocado because you don't end up with, you know, two nasty, dead, black, gross avocados by the end of the week. Uh, next, cream, butter, and cheese, all with some level of moderation there, right? Um, but I use cream in my coffee. So it's really milk, right? But it's, it's any it's cream, butter, and cheese are uh, low carb, high fat. I do think you have to do some moderation with cheese. You can overeat cheese because it is to a degree processed. Um, there's also a lot of calcium in cheese, so you have to be careful with going too high in your dietary calcium. But, you know, bits of cheese here and there are great ways. Um, another plant source that I do not have a problem with being a part of your diet, but I wouldn't be using extracted oil from it, but using it in, like on salads and in some other things, is hemp. Uh, hemp is a high, it's one of the only complete proteins that you can get from a vegetative source, and it's a high quality fat. And again, there's a difference between consuming a plant that has fat in it and consuming the fat extracted from the plant. One is something very true to our ancestors, and the other is not. Okay, And if you think about it, the most ancient fat extracted from a plant is olive oil. It requires the least amount of work. And that's probably why it's, you know, nutritionally not a bad thing. Um, next up would be, and it's kind of sort of going back to why coconut oil is okay, but pure MCT oils or medium-chain triglycerides. This is some something that even some of the biggest health nuts, like Thomas Delore, uh, use in their, their keto uh, dietary regime. So MCTs are the a specific group of medium-chain triglycerides that are generally derived from coconut oil. It's not their only source, but it's their, their highest and best uh, efficient source. And so where coconut oil can have some things that are not all perfect, I wouldn't say not bad for you, but just not perfect, MCTs are only the best part of the coconut oil, generally. Um, it's not a, a wonderfully flavored oil, and it's something that does not survive being heated very well in absence of the other uh, fatty chains that are with pure coconut oil. Uh, and, and the MCT is a very small part of if you're just doing straight coconut oil. So I want to list them separately, but MCT oil... In, in addition to people make bulletproof coffee with it. Now, don't, I said not to heat it. I'm not talking about the temperature you drink your coffee at. I'm talking about throwing it in a pan and frying it. It is a very 
Well, you're gonna have to try different brands, and I don't remember. There's like an MCT. There's like this six, eight, ten, twelve something. There's a range, and one of them, it might be eight, has a not so nice taste. And if you're just throwing it in a coffee or whatever, you're not gonna notice it. If you get one that it's either neutral, doesn't have much taste, there's no reason that can't be added to salads or vegetables after cooking as well. And it's MCT oil. If you're trying to lose weight, is almost a net zero. Because it has an effect of ramping up metabolism that is almost accounts for the amount of calories you're eating anyway, but you get all the benefit and balance of the fat. So those are ways I say that you can do this. And if Ken disagrees, we don't have to agree on everything. But I, I think the big concern is all these processed vegetable oils. Those things need to go away and die and never come back. The fact that we grow massive fields of corn... To press corn oil out of corn is insane in my view, right? It doesn't make any sense at all nutritionally or environmentally. And then remember, I actually advocate a mostly keto diet uh, with somewhat of a paleo primal uh, component to it. Now, I want to be clear what I mean by that. When I sat down and had a come to Jesus meeting, come to Jesus between Jack and Jack in his own life in August last year. And I accepted the fact that I was about 60 pounds overweight and I had no excuse for it. I went regimented keto until I got down into about the 205-pound range, which is a great weight for me. Those of you who have seen me in person know I look like a totally different human being at this weight that I'm at now. And I feel healthy and I feel strong and I feel active. And all the things that were little and big health problems in my life are gone. Until you get there, when I say keto, I mean keto all the time. If you never, if you never wrecked your health in the first place, we're talking about doing this in mass. If everybody did this, or most people did this, most of our chronic inflammatory diseases of modern society would go away. We wouldn't have them. And so you can have some sweet potato. You can see what I'm saying. Like you don't have to always do this. So if we follow kind of the primal paleo blueprint mindset one or two days a week and not two days back to back, and if we do those specifically on days we have high activity levels planned, you ain't going to get fat and you ain't going to get sick. Now, if you're doing that when you're trying to fix your screwed up life and you already are a carbohydrate addict, you're already over it will plateau you, it will it will derail you. It, you got to fix the problem first. And then our Paleolithic ancestors did not live all keto all the time because when they came across a fig tree, they ate the figs on it. Right? They just didn't have a fig farm and 500 million figs to create sugar in their lives all the time from. And the tubers that they consumed were not these highly refined, high-carbohydrate tubers. They were more primitive. So I try to mimic that. I am heavy veg keto I would say six days a week, and some sometimes it's three weeks in a row, seven days a week. But especially in winter, as we take some of our tubers out of the ground and stuff like that, you know, a Saturday where I'm working all day outside, we'll have some sweet potatoes that night for dinner. That's okay. So you don't have to be a purist to gain the benefits. But now that I've said that, I got to say something else. If you go keto but you don't go keto, you will wreck your health. And what I mean by that is if you you have a couple 
where the husband and the wife disagree on this, and the wife's making all her keto stuff, and the husband's eating the wife's keto stuff and still eating high carbohydrates, high carb and high fat will wreck your body. Just to be clear, you can't be half in on this. And lastly, especially if you're moving toward you know some pars- partially paleo primal, if you are intermittent fasting and you are healthy and you have gotten down to a target weight, I, I can't see it causing you any issues. Because if you're doing two meals a day, you're, you're just first of all, if you do two meals a day in an intermittent fasting pattern, and you eat generally healthy, you're probably going to be mostly okay anyway, even without keto. You add keto, you add low carb to that, you you keep and you add being like I've talked about before, clean keto. So we're doing healthy foods, not garbage, and no processed foods. You will trust me if you give it a shot. You will. You will look back on the day you decided to do it as the day that you took your life back. I can say that with confidence. With that, let's go ahead and wrap things up today. I've got a cool item of the day for you. I'll just be brief on it because there's a video on it. And I already talked about it this week in the fishing show. It's the Dr. Slick Scissor Clamps. These things are really cool. Um, they are beefy. So when I say beefy, I mean at least twice as beefy as a standard hemostat. Plus they have a built-in scissor. Plus, they have a, a built-in hook eye clearer, I guess you would call it. Basically, it's a little pointy thing. And if you've ever had a jig head and it's got paint over it, you're like, damn it, and you take another hook and you waller it out, and then you've kind of dulled that hook, and you, it's not so nice, but you got to do it because you got to get a line through there and it line like that. It's a little thing that you just, boom, and it just knocks it out perfectly. And it's kind of buried in the handle so that when you close them, it's covered so it won't catch on anything or poke anything or cause any problems. It's got scissors built into it. People on Amazon that review it say, it doesn't cut braid. I made a video, 65-pound braid cuts it like butter. I don't know. Some people can't operate scissors. They failed scissor day in in kindergarten. I don't know. Whatever. Anyway, check them out. Um, They are more expensive than a normal pair of hemostats, but they're a lot cooler of a tool. Uh, And remember, you can always support this show and the work that we do if you do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Next up, song of the day. This is a little bit different of a song of the day. I don't know how many songs like this I ever play for you guys. This is a very romantic song. It's by a dude named Riley Green. It's called When She Comes Home Tonight. This may be, without it being lewd innuendo, one of the most seductive, sexy, country music songs you ever heard in your life. Yes, it's country, and you won't care. Uh, You might want to someday, guys, use this song. That's all I'm going to say. And with that, I hope you have a great weekend. It's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Five a.m. at the door, eight hours, maybe more, staring me down. Hating work, hauling dirt, man, this shit's just been wearing me out. Half or two, nothing to do Cause that girl, she don't get off till five But I'll have a bottle of weight And this on when she pulls in the drive When she comes home tonight We'll take that clock off the wall them curtains let our clothes just lay where they fall we'll turn down the light
your eyes Be just her and I And we'll take our time She comes home tonight Been a while overdue Getting her alone thoughts Been driving me wild Killing time to her and I Getting back to love it like it's going out of style And I'm staring at this bottle weight And this song when she pulls in the drive When she comes home tonight We'll take that clock off the wall Draw them curtains Let our clothes just lay where they fall We'll turn down the lights And let our hands be alright Be just her and I We'll take our time She comes home tonight Home tonight. When she comes home tonight. When she comes home tonight. 